30 robberies, $2.3 million in five years. Brian Sobolewski's father was the mastermind behind a family jewelry heist with his two sons, Kevin and Brian. They did their time in prison, and now they're back in the real world and ready to tell their story. Brian Sobolewski has started a new podcast called Family Jewels, true crime from the criminal's perspective. And I was so excited to be able to interview him and hear more about the details of some of the robberies and just his story in general. It was super interesting. And I'm going to share that interview with you today. Give it a listen and go check out Brian's new podcast, Family Jewels, on Anchor FM, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is True Crime IRL. An interview with Brian Sobolewski of Family Jewels. Hi, can you hear me? Nothing. I sound awesome, I bet. You do, yeah. Now I would like to hear you. Wait, is it me? Hold on, let me turn my, oh, my volume's up. All right, can you hear me now? Can I hear you? I can hear you. That's why. Why does that happen? Don't you love technology? I do. And I don't because a lot of the things that go wrong with my technology prove to me that we will never be attacked by these machines. That little issue that I just had proves to me that AI will never come to kill the humans because they'll be Uh, downloading something and it'll slow down. Give my listeners just like a little synopsis of what your podcast is about and yeah what you want people to know about you okay well uh my family uh the podcast is called family jewels uh it's a true crime podcast by actual criminals um it started a couple months ago um and it was at the behest of one of my comedy friends who's been telling me since podcast started i don't know like 10 years ago you should start doing a podcast. True crime is is really popular. And mm-hmm. I only listened to him this February when I started the Family Jewels podcast. My hope always with the story, and when I first wrote the book, and there's, there's, you know, the book was written from a true crime perspective for that genre. If you've ever read a true crime book, it's really just a book that's written like a newspaper article. Mm-hmm. This is what happened on this date and this date. So that my book, when I switched the book from memoir to true crime, I, I lost a lot of the hindsight explanation for a lot of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the book reads very much like stereo instructions, in my opinion. So the podcast is allowing me to spread out the information over episodes. And I'm actually surprising myself at how much content I have, um, because I'm at episode 11 and I don't even have a, like, I'm not seeing a, an end <laughs> to, to yeah. what I can produce. And I have actually just started recording conversations with my dad because you're hearing my perspective. I'm a middle child. I'm a little spacey. My brother is, is a very different <laughs> kind of guy. He's a very different character in my comedy and in the books that I've written I've always tried to bring him out and bring his struggle alive. And I never have been able to, cause I was just too emotionally connected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the podcast, at least I can deliver, you know, this is him. This is what, this is what he was used for. He was truly the only moral barometer we had. Your brother. Yeah. 
my brother was the only one that was asking the questions, are we bad people? Why are we doing this? Uh, should we be doing this? You know, and bouncing it off of me, of course, and my question, my, the answer was always no to me, but we were just so loyal to, to dad. Mm-hmm. And dad, and when we confronted him and said, hey, dad, what is the end game here? Why are we doing this? He, the number that he would say mm-hmm. we needed to get to to stop kept going up. Yeah, I, I was listening to that episode today. It was like it started with, well, if we could just make 500,000, we can just retire and never do it again. But but no. once you are start like you do it, it's like it's like an addiction, too. And then it's like more. And then you were like, no, a million and then one point five and three and blah, blah, blah. Like it kept going on. Yeah. yeah. Have you done a lot of podcast interviews with people? You are my first. What? I- I have only been doing my podcast since February. Yeah. So no, I haven't, I haven't done any. I mean, I've done interviews for comedy, but not for this medium yet. You are my first. So you are absolutely going to be ingrained in my brain for the rest of my life. No wow. How far I go with this That's as cool. my first interview. Um, okay. It looks I... like my kitchen's behind me, but that's actually, that's my bathroom. That's my shower right there. What? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> Okay, uh, I guess. It's... Well, see, I'm in Florida, so we, you could keep the beach theme. Or You're you in Florida? Like, I'm in Florida right now. Wait, does your dad live in Florida? Yes. Are you visiting your dad? No, I live in Florida. Oh. I, I went from Massachusetts, I was, um, and I went to Nantucket. Now, Nantucket is part of Miss Massachusetts, but it's an island, so it's really not. Some really strange, weird, wonderful things happen in Nantucket. Um, there so once never... was a girl from Nantucket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you want to f- go ahead and finish that. Um, <laughs> I tried to, I actually thought I could live there because eight weeks out of the year as a personal trainer, it's, uh, I was making five, six grand a week. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Cause you have to understand that Nantucket goes from 5,000 people to 80,000 people after Labor Day. Tourism. Yeah. Or Memorial Day. After yeah. Memorial Day, but but you're talking about the kind of people that own boats so big they have to buy other boats smaller, sort of tug behind it so they could actually go into harbor. Like these boats are too big yep. to actually get to Nantucket, yep. so they have to own two boats. Yeah, you no, know, to me that I may be old and so poor that that seems like overkill to me. Like if if on your list of of things to buy at the boat store include another boat. A boat for my boat. You're doing okay. You're doing all right. Like I need uh, air horns. I need some life jackets. And we may as well pick up another boat while we're at it. Yeah. So you're in the Midwest, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you drink? No. Occasionally, but not much. I don't, I'm a, um, I always like to maintain control. I Drinking is the ultimate loss of control to me. Yeah. Um, I know you went through all rehab and all of that. So I just... It didn't take. It didn't take. It didn't take. It didn't take. I actually, uh, one of my psychology degrees is in substance abuse counseling. I I was listening to, I was binging you today and I heard that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, And it was there that I started to really um, look for other ideas and other ways to treat addiction, especially alcoholism that um, AA wasn't doing in and like in the podcast, I mentioned the book, AA Culture Cure. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the first book that actually just says, hey, there, there are dozens of modalities out there, but 
when you look at how entrenched Alcoholics Anonymous is in the court systems, how much they recommend it, how much they force it. It's not even an option for you. Sometimes you have to go back and be like, hey, judge, here's 50 signatures of other alcoholics that I went and sat with because you told me to. If you don't find recovery there, what are you supposed to do? Well, it's like, it's like church. You got to sit every Sunday and, and do it. So uh, I don't know that that's the best way to treat something that is just so prevalent. I've heard things about AA that it's actually kind of enabling for your addiction sometimes when you get yeah, a bunch of addicts together, you know, and they talk about how great that high was or whatever, yeah. and then they go do it together. I mean, I don't know anything about it, but I've heard some things. Okay, so that's a big problem here where we live in the Midwest. Meth is big. I mean, not for me. I've not, I have never done that, but it's um a big, 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 big problem. Meth addiction uh, and people going to prison for that and making it and stuff. So yeah, no, yeah, it's like, meth is the big thing in the midwest i think you have a lot of labs exploding out there yeah meth labs oh my gosh so i well i used to live in a city uh, called cedar rapids it's the second biggest city in iowa and i lived right downtown and um i sold the house we lived in but like two weeks after the buyers they kept texting me and stuff and they were like um, there was a meth lab in the backyard, like a mobile meth lab. And I was like, thank God I got out of there. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, How yeah. That of the Midwest. Meth. It's it. Meth is like the, it's like, um, the Midwest is like the heartland of meth. Yeah. That's where mm -hmm. it all comes from. I think, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, now it's just funny to me now because I used to do a lot of cocaine, but yeah. to me, the pharmaceutical companies, if there is an award for improving upon a drug, Adderall absolutely improved upon where cocaine left off. Hey, give me a prescription for Adderall. Yeah. No, I say that you get the prescription of Adderall at, at your first, you know, legitimate trauma because lots of people grow up normal and don't need it. But I can tell you that I have a friend that could literally do a half ounce of cocaine and say, hey, I want to go to sleep now, lay down and be out in 25 seconds. I mean, yeah. there are people out there whose brain chemistry actually acts the opposite of the intended desired effect. Well, for Adderall, they say if you legitimately need it, it kind of like slows you, you down. You can go to sleep. Yep. You can take you Adderall and go to sleep. If you don't need it, you'll be wired for like two days, not two days, but you know, like. So how much, how many of the prescriptions that are out there that are written are for people that actually have ADHD? It's, it's like everybody thinks they have um, a, a gluten allergy. Yeah. Oh my God, I have a gluten allergy. No, you don't. It, it, the, app, the way that they are um, proofing bread now, they're using chemicals and it's those chemicals that people have an adverse reaction to. I don't think anyone should really be eating refined carbs and flour and white. Well, but they're so delicious. Anyway. They're so delicious. They are really delicious. Bagels but are like the best, are like God's. I think heaven will be made out of bagels. Bagels have protein. Did you know that? Uh -huh. 
They yeah, have a, a few grams of protein. Yeah. Right. Why yeah. is that good? Protein's good, obviously. Why? Why is that good? Because it's the building block of muscle. Hey, are you drinking wine? I I had to. I was what time is it there? What? What time is it there? It's five o'clock somewhere. Oh, That's okay. all. So you could, uh, it's only twelve here. That's perfectly acceptable for brunch on a weekend. First of all, I'm wearing all these jewels. You can't really see them very well, but I have all my jewels. Okay, so so let's walk through these pieces, please. <laughs> I actually went to the thrift store this morning and bought anything that looked shiny. So okay. I've got I've got this beautiful tennis bracelet. Look at that right, right there. Right. Yeah, you were okay. talking about tennis bracelet in one yeah. of your episodes and you said like each gem was like half a carrot or something. Yeah. yeah That's really nice. big. That's a really nice tennis bracelet. That's yeah. Really nice. I mean, there were there were points in in during the robberies that our house looked like a treasure chest. Like a Pirates Black of the Caribbean. Treasure, like. <laughs> yeah. Like that, you know the movie The Goonies? That yeah, scene right. where they finally make it to um Chester Copperpots treasure. Yeah, and it's wow, just everywhere. that movie, man. You are yeah. I can't even take it. Um, but it, I don't know if you know anything about Massachusetts, but in Massachusetts, there's a place called Lynn Woods. Mm-hmm. And it, it used to be a, a trailway for sailors. And there it is a rumor that Blackbeard the Pirate left his treasure somewhere in Lynn Woods. And there's a cave in Lynn Woods. You can go down and reach seawater. So I don't know what it looked like, you know, 400 years ago. Um, but they say the treasure is buried there. But I can tell you that there is the there is a possibility of three potential Sobolewski treasures out there. What was it? You I said talked about, I nothing talked was about, ever recovered. Oh, was it the one where um, the man inflated how much was actually stolen? Of all and- of them. In all of them. So there's there's definitely an, an undercurrent or a, a, a design to a lot of the podcasts because you'll hear my dad explain it. And the way that he explains it, and I think the way that he justifies it in his mind is that every single robbery, the person that we robbed made money. We specifically targeted people that were either previously under suspicion for robberies that, uh, that they pulled themselves or that they overinflated themselves. There was a genius to it at first during the Mm -hmm. first, I would say three, maybe three and a half years before things started getting crazy. And You'll hear how dangerous in episode 11, I talk, my dad talks about a Lowell robbery in Lowell, Massachusetts that we didn't do, but uh, because it was an inside job, the guy wanted to hit his own store. He wanted to retire. And so he's like, well, you just come in and rob me. I'll split the take with you and I'll claim the insurance. Because uh, was it known that you guys did this? Like, did people? Yeah, well, yeah. Know? No, not it, it would be amazing if you were to see how easy it is to convince somebody to do this. They were, we have three co-defendants, all of them were women, and um, they were all very easy to convince to be part of this. It was just, hey, you want to make 25 grand? Yeah, okay. And you tell them what we were doing and, and they jumped to it. Nobody was, there was always the worry that somebody's going to be like, no, uh, I'm going to go to the police, but that did not happen ever. Until we were caught. So, okay. I want to start with like that first 
robbery plan. Okay. Is that okay? Uh, I'm going to do some push-ups. Hold on. <laughs> you got to show them. Show yourself. No, because no, I haven't cleaned my apartment. I haven't done the floors in a while. You said you've been cleaning all day. Yeah, just the surfaces, like up here. Like, look at this. It's very clean. It's all I, white. I had a very, very strict Polish grandmother on my mother's side, uh, Bobci. I, I heard about her, too. No, wait. She's the uh, one who lifted the the dresser. No, that, that was Bupchi, yeah. Okay. Bupchi. So she's five, six, both directions. Mm, yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just listened to this right before we did this, yeah. Well, I mean, and you paid such good attention. Did you take an Adderall? No. No. When I was married. Oh, you were married. Oh, I was going to ask about that, too. Okay, sorry. I, I was talking. married for about 20 minutes. My, my wife literally, or ex-wife, changed ideologies overnight once the ring was on her finger. We, I went in a five-year relationship with her. During the first year of that relationship, I got a vasectomy because I think it's bullshit if a woman has to handle all of the birth control. You right? didn't want kids together? Uh, no, no. And she didn't want them either. And she understood why I didn't want them. She knew my past. It, how, how old were you when you did that? What's funny about this is I was 30 years old. Uh, I was 35. And I went into the doctor's office and he said, Bri, I don't do vasectomies for guys under 45 years yeah. old. He's like, what's up? And two minutes into my life story, he's like, cancel all my appointments. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, he saw why. He was a good doctor. But the day after, I'm talking about 12 hours after we were married, she wanted me to make an appointment to, with a vascular surgeon to have it reversed. But she wanted you to have it done in the beginning, though. She right? wanted. She was okay with the vasectomy. She was okay with me not wanting having not having kids. She knew I didn't want them. And the day after our marriage, she changed her tune to "I want them," and I would like you to go see a vascular surgeon to have this reversed. Wow. Yeah, you yeah. can't do that. You got Listen, I, I would never have been opposed to kids if you eased me into it. But um, yeah. That, that seemed to me a, a too much of a change of yeah. thinking that I didn't want to bring a kid into that. And it depends. Yeah. It depends on the person. I think anyone would be open to kids with like the right person or whatever, but yeah, that's. No, I think I'll, you start with the dog. Like if you don't fuck the dog up. <laughs> I don't know. You can move on. All right. First robbery. Okay. Yes. First robbery. Okay. How, how do you get to a point where you're just living your life, everything's normal, and then your dad suddenly starts planting these seeds in your head? Let's just steal some shit. Like, how, do, how does that happen where did he just bring it on you or did he just gently plant seeds every so? Or, I mean, how does that work? So I, I part of my comedy is exploring that part of it. You know, it wasn't, do you just come home from college one day and your dad says, hey, do you want to rob somebody with me? Mm -hmm. um, as I begin to think about it and I've processed my own life and what happened in it, my dad couldn't afford another house after he divorced my mom. So instead, he bought a piece of land. He had the foundation poured. He capped it. And we lived inside of it, my brother and I. And on weekends at night, we would drive around to construction sites and steal the rest of what we needed to build the house. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing that my father, brother, and dad ever stole about it, me, my brother, and my dad ever stole, was a house. 
You stole a house. You stole a house. Wow. My dad loved that house. And ironically enough, a year after my dad sold that house, the only tornado to ever have been known to touch down in Massachusetts leveled it. Karma. Yeah, God was like a year away from, he was a year off from getting my dad still living in it. But the guy that, that bought it from him wasn't too happy. But that, that it was, I used to call it labor camp because we on the weekends we would just go live in a, in a basement and frame the house. And my dad was a mason, so he did lots of stonework. I mean, one of, he did masonry in his spare time. I'm talking about Mm-hmm. that's how I, he has that same anxiety where he you know he's like an untrained border collie he can't if you leave them by themselves you're coming home to you know destruction you know what i mean yeah i do know what you mean because i'm like that too kind of <laughs> i've been known to tear out floors in the course of a day or like just i'm i'm getting rid of this i do stuff like that too. i rent so i can't pull that shit anymore i own a really old my house is really old and i like home remodeling so I do crazy stuff but so it didn't like really start with life is normal we go to church every Sunday life is totally normal and now we're gonna start robbing it was kind of like a gradual grooming over your whole teenage years and right kind of like was he always into crime no well I will tell you that I mean a lot of this has me thinking what constitutes a thief so was my brother a thief or was he a soldier? Um, I can tell you that, that ever since I was a kid with the dysfunction that was in my family life, I always stole stuff. I stole stuff that I liked so I could keep it in the closet somewhere and go look at it later. Um, I stole food. I stole, I was really the only one that, that did it out of a, a survival. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think I was really the only true thief in the family because even later in my life, I like to steal shit. Up. I, <laughs> this is how I put it. When I was a kid, if somebody came up to me and said, Bri, if you work your entire life, you can accumulate a house, you can accumulate a bank account, you can accumulate all these wonderful things. And I said, or I said, or I could wait for you to do all that shit and then take your stuff. <laughs> That was my thinking. That that yeah. was my that that was the logic that I had as a kid. My mm-hmm. dad was different. My dad's like, let's work and work and work. My dad honestly thought that the jewelry robberies were work. That we called them jobs. You will hear in one of the recorded conversations with him, he calls them adventures now. It's an mm-hmm. adventure to him. I guess you label it as whatever makes you feel like better and lets you sleep at night, right? Kind uh, of I don't think he I don't think he ever felt a measure of guilt. I don't I don't know why. Well, I was- say sociopath. I do that only because the, the definition of a sociopath is one that flaunts societal rules. Mm-hmm. And my dad had my dad followed every single rule that he agreed with. <laughs> that he agreed with. It's like <laughs> the people who like interpret the Bible or something in a way that works for right, them. All right. I'll, like do, I'll do every yeah. other of the yeah. of the commandments. Yeah, I don't think it really means this. It really yeah. means this. So I'm gonna do yeah. that. Yeah. 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 So to answer your question, was it this slow, insidious turning us into? No. My dad always believed in education. Uh, my dad was brilliant, went to the Wentworth School of Technology. My dad has a brain. You'll hear him on the calls. 
you hear his intelligence. You hear. I do. And I have. Yeah, I do. He's a smart guy. He's really well-spoken and he's very charming. And I bet he's really handsome too. I haven't seen pictures of him. I have a look at the family jewels podcast. on Okay. Um, And I'll I'll say he looked like Darth Vader unmasked. A hundred percent. I I don't remember that scene of the movie actually i don't remember it's in the last one luke carries him out after he gets shot by the emperor um, i i uh, thought it, he so was really ugly or something like doesn't he have some deformed head or something well, but i mean if you look past that can you please look past people's faces for once in your Sorry. life look past the surface um darth was very very uh introspective no they they just just i think it's the baldness but they do look eerily alike and my dad found that to be a compliment when I left that movie as a kid, my dad took us to see that. My dad left pissed. My dad was like, there's no way the, em- the Empire lost that. He's like, there's no way. He's like, Luke, Luke was a pussy. <laughs> wow. Like, wow, dad, that's right. But you know, <laughs> you're, you're making a valid point. He is kind of a pussy. So how close do you live to your dad right now? You're both in Florida. So after I, my, my dad got out of prison and moved back in with his mother, my grandmother, my Russian side of my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where my brother was living. I left and I was living in Salem. And by the time I was divorced, that's on my bucket list, Salem have to go, you have to, but you, you have to go with somebody that knows the, the city. Don't go for, don't go for the glitz. It's like, don't go into Dunkin' Donuts in Massachusetts anywhere and order tea. You'll get punched in the face. No. We're still, and everybody in Massachusetts is still pissed about the Boston Tea Party. We're, it's a different okay. world, like the East Coast. Different world. Totally. Yeah. I, I spent I, much time I, in the Midwest. I have. I, I lived in Aspen for five years, six years. Okay. I love the Midwest. Different than Colorado, though. That's I wouldn't call that the Midwest. Colorado is a whole <laughs> different animal. My brother oh, lives in Denver. Okay, yeah. So what, why is it different from where you grew up? It's more, well, way more liberal in Colorado. Really but super. They love their guns, man. They have their guns. Yeah. Liberals with guns. This is not good. That's weird. Yeah. The Midwest where I live is just a lot of like farmers and super, super, super conservative people, Christian conservative people. And oh. it's just very rural i think i've driven through probably driven through past right my way gosh that was quite a rabbit hole the first robbery was presented to us as a do or die situation for all of our lifestyles i mean that that's essentially what dad came home when we came home for christmas 1990 it was hey uh if we don't do this uh we're screwed and and we were never entirely sure that he had on him the first robbery the first jacob robbery grabbing a case on my podcast um we weren't quite sure he was going to have what we what we were going to need um to make it worth it that's the one Um, that never came to fruition right because it did it did what's the one one that you were gonna do and then you didn't do that's the murder okay that one and you were and your brother was like rye are we bad people what was going through your head then? Like you weren't really nervous, but your brother seemed like his um, moral compass yeah. was really going crazy. I felt like I had to quell my moral compass because I felt the same way. 
but we were not capable of presenting that to dad in because dad did two robberies on his own before that no this was we when my brother and i were both in cambridge jail awaiting trial we both sat down with our lawyers at the same time and both of them were like hey we looked through the discovery did you know your dad did two jobs by himself um we were sh- i was shocked kev was shocked because a, a lot of the reasons why i didn't bow out of them completely was i wanted dad to be safe and so much right. of it was like we never in a million years thought he would do it without us we thought we were i mean it felt almost as weird to say as it is job security you right know, he needs us and it turns out he didn't did you feel so, like a little betrayed or surprised that he did that or i was sitting in prison for yeah you know, an indeterminable amount of an indeterminable amount of time. So yes, I felt betrayed I, I, for so many years post prison. I was angry. Um, I go into it in the podcast about what it's like being an ex con and what it's like being an ex con for what I did. Um, it, it's a very unique story, and so many people say it's cool, but it, it the worst part of the sentence I think has been. Um, having to change my career goals instead of going where I wanted to go and in doing what I did. What did you want to do? You wanted to go into social work? Psychology. I I got a, I wanted to get a master's in social work because that's what my college professor was telling me to get, because at the time it was a very marketable degree. It opened up lots of jobs for you. And psychology is one of those, sorry, it's, it's, if you know somebody with a psychology degree, they're crazy. And I was no different. Uh, And I, I knew that. I knew that this wasn't a career that you got into for money. I did it because it was one of the first things I ever did besides sticking a gun in somebody's face that I felt like I was good at. And, um, you know, it was heartbreaking to realize I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? That I had to give up that aspiration. And so for the first 15 years of my 30 year personal training career, I hated personal training. Like in your comedy act, you joked that the only reason I'm in personal training is that because I, I'm a ex-felon, right? Is that right? Yeah. 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 So you had some animosity that, well, this is all I can do or something, right? Something like that. It really is. It's, it, I was with my ex-wife for five years and it it wasn't, it was only in our last year together. She sat down and called the five biggest lawyers in Boston and asked, Hey, you know, what is, what, what can this person do if they have these felonies on their record? And they all laughed at, they were like, nothing. That's really sad. I think that's really sad. I don't, I don't. There's two sides, two very, very important and very, very um, valid sides to that coin. And as an ex-con, I thank God for prison walls. They are important. You need them. We may need more of them. My objection to prison right now is that you privatized it. And now that it's a private company, government has to, or federal government has to write subsidy checks when that prison's empty. Mm -hmm. So if tomorrow crime ends, the government's still writing a check to these prisons. So it behooves them to keep them full. So I don't know how, how, (laughs) You're reading my mind because that is something I've talked about before in podcast episodes and other things. Privatization of prisons is bullshit, in my opinion. publicly traded. You can go on right now and buy stock in prisons on the stock market. Yeah. So buy it because it ain't going down. 
Oh no. And, and then you just get, it's like people are in the business of putting other people behind bars and, and, and then there's the lobbyists and all these people who are like, yeah, criminalize this put and it mostly like drug, like weed people in prison for weed and just like ridiculous things. And then young people that brings me into another talking point I wanted to talk about life after prison. Okay. You were in prison for three years, right? Three years. And then you talk, you do one whole episode about life after prison and you talk about all the doors getting slammed in your face, not just like, I would like to work here or this or that, but like relationships, friendships after you've been in prison and you're, what do you call, I mean, what do you, I don't like calling you an ex-criminal or an ex-con or an ex I mean, what do you call? I don't, I feel like that's all like derogatory language. I don't like it. Like, what do you refer to yourself as in that way? I mean, I would like to refer to you as a human or a normal person or, but what do you call that whole thing? What do you say? I don't know. Uh, Ex-con is, I guess, the the only term that I know for it. Um, I don't, I don't know. Is it negative? Yeah, it is. And the badge that you have to wear post prison is, uh, I think that there are better ways to work that out. And I, that's what I said in the podcast is this is a, a 6 million plus population. So I don't understand why there's a single uh, piece of trash anywhere in this country. I, and, and all of the infrastructure stuff that yeah. we keep talking about, yeah. why aren't the inmates out there? And I'm not saying slave labor because there was somebody down south that, that had a chain gang, which is a bunch of people chained together doing that. that. That's not what I'm talking about. Incentivize an inmate to work for the state in some capacity so that they can either have their records downplayed or expunged or at least... I don't know. There's going to be a way to put them to work and they are doing that. So one of the places that I worked in prison was a cottage. We called it the cottage, but it was offices. And we basically took orders for all of the offices, government offices in Massachusetts. And I took orders for millions of dollars. And you had, of course, they're making license plates. So the state license plates are made mm-hmm. in prison. But there was a remember the furniture company, This End Up? Yeah. You can look it up. I don't know if it's around anymore, but it was assembled by inmates. Okay. Yeah. A lot of the eyeglasses that you're wearing are assembled and made by inmates. Um, it, there are prison industries, and in my opinion, you should build prisons as warehouses. Maybe Amazon should go into prison labor. Right? There's got to be a way to and to have the people leave with a marketable skill. Yeah. I don't mean that, hey, we're just going to put them to work. But I mean, imagine working as an inmate for your 12 years in prison in an Amazon warehouse to doing deliveries and whatever. Maybe you get an extra pillow in your cell. I'm not saying we should cushion, let these guys home on the weekends. I'm just saying that maybe there's a way to get them to, to maybe we can start assembling cars. There's six million of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do uh, something um, productive with their time so that they can come out with some sort of skill and not revert back to a life of crime or something, because that's something I wanted to talk to you about too. Recidivism, you you had some job opportunities come up after prison, but they were like, no, no, now I know your past. I don't want you around me. First of all, how does that make you feel? Because you've got someone saying, 
to you, oh, well, I know you, but um, your past and only your past defines you. You served your time, but sorry, you're still a criminal and I don't want you in my company or I don't want to date you or I don't want to do this. Like, how does that make you feel for one thing? And did it ever tempt you to be like, well, fuck this. I'm going to go back to committing crimes where I know I can make money or some, I don't know. Like what did you feel Uh, about all of that? I don't jaywalk. Prison worked. I'm good. (laughs) Um, I have no interest. You, I would never go back. I would never do anything to put me in that position again because it's complete emptiness. It's living inside complete emptiness. So no, it worked. I learned my lesson. Unfortunately, I did time with multiple people that were in their third, fourth, fifth bit and mm-hmm. you know, doing little stretches at a time. But you know, the, when they came up with the three strikes law, this was an attempt to decrease recidivism. No, you just overcrowded prisons. It didn't stop it. So how do you stop crime? You know, I think it's the same old bullshit. You got to look. I think crime is directly associated to how people are doing socioeconomically. Mm-hmm. When the unemployment rate is high, crime is high. When the unemployment rate is low, crime is low. Mm-hmm. So now yeah. we have COVID, all this Black Lives America and all these, you know, listen, something has to be done about the police in America. I get that. I'm not an advocate for them, or nor do I like police. I am still going to call police when the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Are you? You know, all this nonsense about defunding. Uh, no, this is a necessary thing. Well, you can't defund because it would be pure, absolute chaos. It'd be martial it's law. It would, but it'd be like the wild, wild west where people were like. What's wrong with that? It'd be, well, for one thing, you don't like guns. Yeah, no, no. And, uh, and, and you couldn't point, own it, one even if you wanted to. But how do you sure. feel about that? I will tell you that I would only own one because I want, would like to even the playing field because. I know people that have 10. Mm-hmm. I know you have two hands. And if you're ever in the kind of trouble that you need a gun for each hand, move or try to improve your life a little bit better. But the, why people need five is just, it sounds to me like there's five times more chances for it to get in the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. So that's true. Yeah. I would, I am an advocate for gun laws. I wish I could own one only because I live in the state of Florida and you just hear about people getting shot over gas. Florida's bad. um, Yeah. Don't even, this is, this is the wild west. Have you seen that meme? It's like every crime you see is like a Florida man, blah, blah, blah. Like it's all about Florida. It's Florida is like crazy. All the serial killers, all the, it's just, it's all in Florida. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know when I lived in Aspen, what, what's genius about Aspen is their high school is built circularly. Hmm. So if there's a shooter oh, and you're God. running up the hall, he can't shoot you. Yeah. But the fact that they have to think of architecture in that way is absolutely awful. horrifying. Awful. But yeah. at the same time, I will tell you that there are as many guns out in Colorado. Everybody has a gun. They're wearing it on their belt. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're, I mean, I can't say that there aren't as many shootings because so many of them happen in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it is, again, indicative of an undercurrent of suffering that um, just isn't being paid attention to mental mm-hmm. illness. I mean, yeah, I do have my permit to carry. Okay. It was uh, pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a badass yet. I'll let you know when you're a badass. I'm not a badass at all. <laughs> So to answer your question about, about being an ex-con, it sucks. I hate it. It has definitely closed a lot of doors. 
I am hoping that it led me here because this is where I started the podcast. Um, I would very much like um, to someday use this the way that my mother always intended to use every tragedy is turn it into humor. Yes. And yes. If you don't, it'll just eat away at you. Yeah. I say in the podcast, I still have a very difficult time processing what we did, processing who I am as a result of it, processing the fact that I have to be an ex-con in this country. So it's part of the being cathartic and letting it out, I guess, it mm -hmm. is putting it, you know, I would, the, the American public can be a jury of sorts and you guys decide what, how you feel about the Sobolewski family part of your therapy process it's part of yeah. your process kind of yeah making humor out of it and you are super funny Thank you. um so i feel you're su well you're super funny you're super smart i mean do you feel like okay so you did your time in prison but and you're like nope never again i'm done because i mean do you feel lucky kind of in a way because what about the people who are a product of cycles and cycles and generations of abuse and poverty and all this horrible fucked up shit. You aren't really like, do you feel lucky that you can come out of prison and not go back? Like, but a lot of people just keep going back. Like you said, some of your friends there were like in their fifth or sixth stint in prison. Like that's really hard. How do you, how does someone break out of the cycle of abuse and poverty generational like shit that they've been through? Or do you think they ever will? Or do you think it, it would um, be like learning a skill in prison or like prison reform? What do you think, how does someone break out of that if they've been sucked into it with like their family? And if that makes sense at all, I don't know, but yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I didn't have a great family support system. My you family didn't. Was no, uh, divorced very early on, lots of physical abuse. My mother was, uh, she was very, she was a very volatile person. And I think she had her own demons to struggle with. So um, luck, anytime somebody says, Bri, you're so strong for what you've been through. Um, to me, I hear you are the smartest idiot. That's how it translates in my, yeah. It's like, it's like I'm the, the one of the last, of the evolutionary chain. you like, the new guys are up, but I'm still in that last chain and I made it. I'm like, hey, what the hell am I doing here? I, yeah. I don't see it as I made it through because I'm a strong person. I don't consider myself lucky. I worked really hard to figure out how I ended up in prison. So mm -hmm. I spent, uh, it's the reason why I have both of my psych degrees is I would yeah. sit and read Freud and be like, yep, that's me, got that. All right, yep. let's figure that out. And I did three straight years of very, very, very intense therapy that basically broke down all of my beliefs. And that's beliefs drive behavior. So, so you know, how do you stop this cycle? Prisons are necessary. And, and I believe in the death penalty because Ted Bundy should have been put down. If you are proven beyond a reasonable doubt and and yes, one person ever being put to death that's innocent is unacceptable. At the same time, when you have somebody like Ted Bunny, who we have the mountain of evidence that he was facing and being found guilty on multiple levels, that person's going to go and, and not 15 years later. I mean, it's like, I, I yeah. never have a mess in my living room that I wait for 15 years to clean. No. Sometimes, sometimes the brain gets wired incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some humans that are just wired wrong. Right. Yeah. I know many. I know yeah. many. I'm not lucky.
yes. You're, it's not luck. I mean, it's work. So do you think your educated, intelligent, white male status makes you more fortunate? Maybe than like a minority who has been in like a cycle of poverty and abuse. I guess that's what I meant by that. I'm not the first to say that that the the best place to look at the racial, racial disparities in this country or any country is to look at who we're jailing. Who we're jailing doesn't speak volumes about who is the poorest behaving, right. it tells us exactly how, how badly they're suffering. Right. So yeah. what the answer to that is, is not necessarily to log them up, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am not an advocate for being lenient either. Right. So there think- has to be a way to, to meet in the middle. And now we're just so punitive Mm-hmm. that I'll tell you that there was never a time that my brother and I would sit and say, hey, do you know that uh, unmasked armed robbery starts with a three-year minimum sentencing guideline and goes up to life? Did you know that? No. Do you want to sit down and consider the ramifications of what that might be like when we sit down and do discovery with a lawyer when we're caught? No, it was, hey, we're going to go do this. It, there's a passion level to this that that negates the logical part of your brain that would say, hey, let's not do this. And when your yeah. dad is saying, here's the gun, let's go party, that changes things too. Would you say you, your dad, your brother, are you guys impulsive? Did you do a lot of planning or were you just like, just do it? No, no. When you hear my dad in these phone calls, he it was very meticulous. We did a lot of casing I say in the podcast that I did most of the casing because my brother and father are so distinctive looking Mm -hmm. that when you're casing, which is basically just watching a place to sort of get down any patterns that you can notice about a place, you have to make sure when you're casing that you don't become caseable. I don't want to become part of the very backdrop that I'm hoping to learn more about. Right. I don't want another person that goes to work at Dunkin' Donuts where I'm sitting every day to watch the jewelry store to say, hey, there's a guy in a Buick every day sitting in his car. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like you said that you would case these places to the point where like you knew that a certain bird would land every day to eat at a certain time. That was crazy. Like that's a lot of work that goes into a robbery then. There was a red Corvette where I knew exactly what time that red Corvette was going to go by. Yep. Um, There was a cop that went into the Dunkin' Donuts at nine o'clock every single day. How Uh, cliche is that, by the way? Yeah, sorry. It's Massachusetts. It was uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire. There's a power plant up there. So they get a pass on all behavior. (laughs) Well, I like Dunkin' Donuts too. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to put some more wine in my glass. Hold on. All right. Okay. Oh, you have boxed wine. You oh. are insane. I don't usually drink boxed wine. I'm usually really fancy. Really fancy. <laughs> if I drank that, I would be dead. Um, I'm allergic to alcohol. I break out in handcuffs. Thank That's you. a really good joke. I might have stolen that. I, don't I like the delivery too. Um, I'm allergic to alcohol. I was like waiting. Will you get a rash or you turn red or what? Break out in handcuffs. That's good. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan of the book. Why? Because of the way I had to write it. Did you write it yourself or did someone like help you or what did you do? Do you remember um, James Frey and the book that he wrote, A Million Little Pieces? Yes. Yeah. Okay. He lied. Right. Lied. Yes. Yeah. I was writing I this book right around that time. And I started chopping it to agents and they were like, get away from us. 
They didn't believe you? They didn't want to take the chance that I might be lying, especially since James Frey's book, he only, he lied about running over a cop, having Novocaine, you know, teeth pulled with Novocaine. Uh I remember all that getting on a plane, like so fucked up, like, like they would have never let him on the plane, Mm -hmm. just stuff like that. But, um, so then you read page five of my book and you're like, no way. They just didn't want to touch it after that. There was such a shock wave of people that didn't want to touch any memoirs unless you were Keith Richard. Everything though that you have done and talk about is verifiable. True. I I put in the back of the book all of the newspaper articles, but there's fact checkers. Like that's their job. They're called a fact checker. It's a it's a fact checker. Fact checker. <laughs> this is what people don't understand about the New England accent. It's very simple. They all think fact that checker. we just drop fact our eyes if it's singular. Wicked smile. If it's plural, it's I-Z. So this is a shoulder. These are shoulders. This is a shoulder. These are shoulders. Shoulders. Is I-Z. Yeah. Shoulders. These are shoulder. shoulders. 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 When you talk yeah. to your dad on those calls, your no. your accent isn't as like strong. And your dad doesn't really have that strong of an accent. No, Um, my dad, I don't want to say he didn't grow up on the North Shore, but um, he grew up in Chelsea and he was around a lot of Polish and Russian people his whole life. I grew up north of Boston. So he bought a house 20 minutes from Boston when he married my mom. And that's where you only really hear the thick New England accent. So in the movie, The Departed, (laughs) you notice that Leo DiCaprio, they had to explain why he doesn't have an accent in there. Yeah. Right? They said, hey, you had two accents, one for South Shore and one for when you were up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and only Mark Wahlberg could have accused him of that. Um, I, I think the New England accent is very difficult to do. When I watch a movie of somebody trying to fake it, it pisses me off. Matt and Sheen, he did the worst New England accent. Him and Leo's, the therapist chick, did the worst job. First of all, no one in, in New England is named Martin. Martin. So you know Martin was <laughs> He, he was just awful at it. Mom. So Mom. it's a very friendly place to make movies, but it was also awful for awful, awesome for Ben Affleck and all those guys that had the accent because they're doing all the movies. Like Goodwill Hunting? Awful. Yeah, those guys are... That was the real deal. It was real deal accents, but that wasn't him. The Town is one of my favorite movies because the only really authentic person in there is Jeremy Renner. And he's authentic because he's... There's a scene where he says, uh, Ben Affleck comes in and says, we're going to go hurt some people. You can't ask me where we're going or yada, yada. And Jeremy Renner is like, who's caught you want to take? But in the next scene, Jeremy Renner makes that situation 10 times worse than it would have been if Ben didn't bring him. That's oh. a Massachusetts friend, right? They, they yeah. will help you. They will go to hell for you. But when on the way, they'll make it worse. We're a bunch of dicks. I mean, I've heard that. I just didn't know that. Since the history of this, since the dawn of the history of this com- country, we ha- we were the first people to tell Britain to fuck off, and we've been we've been doing it ever since. We haven't stopped. So it's ingrained. It's, it, it's just ingrained in you, like it's monstrously corrupt. Everybody talks about Chicago being the most corrupt city. Mafia, the Irish mafia, and the Italian mafia. The entire north end of Boston was run by by the Angelo family, for and it was run well. 
like the what? trash was picked up on time. The, they did, man. They didn't want you doing anything stupid in there unless they were they, in charge of it. So they like nice things. They yeah, wanted to Whitey look nice. Everything up because Whitey had Angulo taken down so he could take the place. I remember. I remember Angulo had um, three houses in Peabody where I grew up. Like you and, actually remember these times? Like you were alive and kicking and hanging out, and you knew the name, and like you just—that was just how it was. Yeah. Yep. The entire city. Even even when we did the Zaykum Bridge, which was recent, I think it was after two thousand. They did a whole big dig, we called it, and the mafia um, was got the contract for all the cement. And after we built the bridge, the the concrete had too much sand and started falling apart. And then the bodies started falling out of there. No, listen, and- the body will solidify that bridge, man. They sold us cheap, crappy concrete. It was supposed to be, you know, the mixture. My dad will kill me if I get this wrong, but it's a third sand, a third concrete, and a third water will give you your mixture. And they did mostly sand. And then we built huge bridges. We built this entire structure underneath the city of Boston with mob contracts. So, was your dad part of that uh, in the mob? What's the difference between the word mob and mafia? What I mean, uh, are they the same? Uh, what does it mean if you're made? That means you're officially you part of the family. <laughs> okay. Is it like a knighting ceremony where they yeah. take a sword and they cut that? your finger? I don't think I'm supposed to be talking about this because I think they kill you if you talk about this. Shit. You're not supposed okay. to talk about Let's Fight just... Club or Mafia yeah. Club. Yeah, zip it yeah. up. Uh, well, I, I will tell you this, that, that before you go into prison, they'll tell you don't drop the soap, right? I was going to ask you about that. Did you ever drop the soap? No, because that's not the issue. It's picking it up. Don't pick it up. Don't pick so, up the soap. Yeah. No, yeah. You can drop it. Just, yeah, drop just, it all you want. I'd go into the it. like nine bombs. You know what they should do if they really care about their inmates? They should just have soap dispensers on the wall. And I bet they do now. They're, they don't use bars of soap. Somebody would rip it off the wall and beat you with it. No, oh, that's not. true. Because you could kill someone with a piece of plastic or something like that. All right. So yep. of the jewelry that you have on, yeah. do you want to go over what I would steal? You would steal these babies. <laughs> no, I, I know not. that. You would steal this big diamond ring. Yeah. It's real. I would, I would go right after that. But it's not real. It isn't? No, it's I got it on Amazon. It looks That's a it's cubic like, zircon. Yeah, it is. Is it like two carrots, maybe? I think it's I think it's probably a little more than like three. Yeah. Two and a half, three. My dad would be able to tell you in two seconds. Very pretty. It is gorgeous. I like big diamond rings. The only thing that's acceptable at this point in my opinion, for what, for a male to wear for jewelry is a watch. Yeah, I agree. It, you look like a douche if you're wearing anything else. Like, yeah. I mean, gold chains, douche. rings. I think you're a douche. weirdo. If you're a guy wearing like a rings, I'm like, who are you? Like, that's weird. Yeah. How old were you when you entered the prison system? 26. If anyone were to ask me, how I determine whether or not I'm a bad person. And I do struggle with that question. Yeah. Um, I always reference the fact that I've never met a dog that didn't like me. And I've never met a kid that didn't like me unless I didn't like the kid. Are they scared of you? No, nope, never. I know. I'm not a big guy, man. I'm only 5'10-ish. That's tall-ish. As I've been doing the podcast, now I'm 11 episodes. I mean, I think the content is there for a series a drama series 
There's content there for a documentary. If you do want to get fact checkers out, start interviewing the DA of the time, you know, go and interview the judge because um, there's there's some very, there, there's a lot of connections and ties there that that make the story intriguing. Yeah. You know, other than the Julemont murder, nobody's murdered per se, but um, the people that I have talked to have all said that, that they are looking for something that is not murder at the moment because everybody's on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they are kind of flipping the switch over to like the non-murder yeah. crime documentaries right now with the, you know, the the Ivy League school documentary that they did with the, the celebrities who paid to get their kids into the Ivy League schools, that one. And then like, um, what Amazing. else? Just there, the art, the art heist, you know, the. Um, but that, and but, that goes into a lot of the mob. At that time, it was either South Boston Irish Mafia that eventually gave birth to the scumbag White Bulger and, uh, and the Angelos. That, that was one of those two did that. The art, the art heist? Yeah, and, and um, I, I'm afraid I didn't record that conversation with my dad, but my dad will tell you what, exactly what he thinks and where that art went. And I, I want to know I, where it, the art went. Okay, so it's the, the Gardner Museum right the gardener yeah, yeah, yeah. the word in front of it something gardener i keep wanting to say susan but it's not susan it's three gardner she's museum. got three names the gardener museum as you've been drinking wine look it up uh, there's a podcast about it called empty frames there's isabella some, stewart gardener museum isabella isabella stewart gardener museum yes okay i'm really curious about that so netflix did that documentary have you watched it did. it's kind of cool um, and then there's a whole podcast about it. There's two guys who do a true crime podcast, but then they have like three other podcasts too. And then it's called Empty Frames. They did that. They did that way before the Netflix documentary. But that whole thing, I love it. It was such a, it was a nonviolent and very well thought out heist. That one guard, remember the pictures? They like taped around, they like made a tape mask. It just made me laugh. It was like, that's not doing anything. Like you just put tape around it. He was the only one taped, correct? Yeah. Okay, so that's where, as a former criminal, would make me think that he was part of it. Yes. Criminal thinking, like, hey, just take your face off. And to do it that way to make it seem like they were amateurish. Like they had this very obscure list of art that they took, like not even the most valuable. They left some of the most valuable things. It was like mob related, like they owed them a favor. They were trying to, I don't know what. Storyline that I believe is A, if you look at 250 million worth stolen is on the street, 25 million. Yeah. I think that they didn't know how much time it was going to take to get the art out of the frames. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they had a very specific list of things they wanted, but couldn't. And, and in panic, grab the thing like the vase thing. Yeah. And, and so I think they were doing it strictly for the money because on the black European market, you can get what I think they said anywhere from 13 to $20 on 20 cents on the dollar. And I mentioned that in the podcast, because that's about if I talk about the fronts that we use in pretty much every episode, um, but that particular one, um, if, if you don't know the front, if the front doesn't have a clean way of disposing of stolen stuff, you pay, you get very little for it. You sometimes get 10 cents on the dollar for it. 
So uh, in the next phone episode, I play a phone call where my dad talks about how we were paying people too much money and we weren't getting the right targets to make it worth enough. Because when you think about 2.3 million stolen over a five-year period, I don't know where any of that is. It's not in your house in Florida. Uh, you're welcome to come and look because there's nothing here. Looks real know. nice. <laughs> would would I put it here? No. No. <laughs> like OJ, I didn't do it, but if I did, here's what I would have done. No, That's I'm joking. That's a confession is what he wrote. He did it. I think there should be all inmate juries. Trial will take two seconds. That defendant, yeah. as soon as he opens his mouth, that jury will be like, guilty, or they'll be like, no, I didn't do it. Somebody that is lying better than an ex-con. You don't want to date me and lie to me? I'll be like, no, tell me the story again. No one can detect a bullshitter better than a bullshitter. And I've literally never thought of that before. All that's You can't steal that. That's an amazing idea. Yeah, all inmate juries. When I first got locked up, I was in Valley Street Jail in New Hampshire. And the morning of my first night, I walk out of my cell and two inmates are, have a newspaper open up on the table and they're reading it and they're pointing at me, giggling a little bit. So I walk over and I'm like, what's up? And they're like, we're reading about you in the paper. They're like, did you do that? And I'm like, no, because that's, that's, that's the prison salute is it? no, no. They knew I did it. They knew I was full of shit. They knew how much time I was eventually going to end up getting. There's just nobody better at detecting bullshit that an ex-con or a con, current con. And there's a, there's a job for them. That's an amazing idea, really. I have so many like cases where I'm like, God, did they do it or not? Like, I had a I tough know. time with the, the, the staircase one. Me too. Oh, I love that Netflix special. I've watched it twice. He's so likable. So is my dad. You said it about my dad. I know, but he's like a narcissist. Your dad? (laughs) Yes. I would say that if you were to define and label and put him in a box, yes. And that is also part and parcel of the difficulty in all psychological diagnoses because some of them are right on the money and you use those criteria to help treat and alleviate those symptoms. You don't want to use them to define that person for the rest of their life. You know, as much as I do have a part of me that's like psychology is not as much of a science as I find anatomy to be. Well, when you only know 3% about this organ, I don't know how much of a science you can devote and, and how much of an understanding you can have of a part of the body that we don't really understand. I think it's like space. We're never understanding. We're no. never understanding. And if, if you're going to believe the Bible, and I think there's going to be a Bible part three. Yeah, and I think, I think Tom Brady is going to play the part of Jesus. What about <laughs> Tim Tebow? What about him? <laughs> He's going to be one of the disciples. Let's not go there, man. I'm from okay. England, and Tom left us, and... Uh, I'm writing a whole set about that man. I'm going to take him down on stage. I don't like Tom Brady. I'm I'm getting sick of him. I'm getting sick of him because he's perfect. I hate the his accent. I don't like the way he talks. That's douchebag entitlement. I, I just don't like him. Him and his supermodel wife. Yeah, they're just perfect. They're just they're perfect. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and your dad. So he's not a narcissist. He's a sociopath. Do, have he, Has he ever heard you call him that before? 
No. What's he going to do when he hears, or does he know what a podcast is? I know you were kind of like, dad, you listen to it. You do it with your ears, not your eyes. And so like, you're, you're like, dad, you walk, you listen to it. Like, does he get what it is? No, no. He read the book, but he read the book uh, recently. I think he was still in, in New England when he read it. And he called me and he said, oh, by the way, I read your book. And I said, oh, okay, what'd you think? And he said, I thought I was fucking hilarious. Good. Did you go like, did the comedy route with it or was it like no, a- No, I did not. I did not. And he just thought it was funny. My dad, it was never, had, never had a sense of humor. And uh, I'm not sure if I told this story in the podcast, but I remember being in the visiting room once. And my mother hated my dad so much post uh, being sentenced. Yeah. When we visited, we had to keep mom at the far end of the row of chairs. If I, if she says, if I hear yeah. him, I will kill him. Really? Yeah, oh. I will rip his fucking throat out. Don't keep, don't just keep me away from him. Wait, though, so oh. why is, what does that stem from? Did they have a terrible marriage or like how long were they married? Like, did he cheat on her? I want, I mean, not my business, but no, I'm asking. No, so. no. I don't think, I will tell you that my sister is my half-sister because my mother cheated on my father. Wow. Okay. My dad, um, my mother is, was a typical woman of her time that had an agenda. She said, when I graduate high school, I'm getting married. I'm going to move close to my sisters. And me and my sisters, we're all going to be around each other and we're going to raise our families together. And then my dad's job got him on the road so much that my mother started complaining that he was never home. He was out earning a living. And Mm -hmm. that is what they would both agree ended the marriage. Mm -hmm. My grandmother on my mother's side will tell you that my father was physically abusive. He was physically abusive to me as kids only briefly. It's so funny because my dad's just always been the kind of person as much of an addict, drug addict as I have struggled with being and my brother does and my sister does. My dad just decided to stop smoking after 10 years. Yeah, I don't like it. I'm like, not going to do it. Uh, He used to have a drink every day, a huge glass of Jack Daniels every single day after work. Just stop. He just, that part of his brain that is stimulated by addiction just isn't there. Wasn't the guy to go to with a scraped knee. He wasn't the guy to go to when you broke up with your girlfriend. I I don't think he knows how to respond to that. He's just not wired that way. I have had to come to the, to to grips with the fact that he's just not wired. Now I talk a lot in the podcast of how my brother and I used to do crazy things just to get him enraged. And the only time we really ever saw him enraged is when a robbery didn't go well. Bill almost was. <laughs> my dad will tell you he almost killed Bill. Oh, you do an episode called Kill Bill. Rob Scott. Dad wanted. It. My dad was pissed because you know. As weird as it sounds, his his anger over the fact that the robberies weren't worth the risk was how he told us he loved us. Is that weird? There are some people who can't verbalize that, I guess. What do you want people to know about you now? Like, who's Brian today? Like, you had a crazy life, but who are you now? That's a good question. I think that I've spent um, the past 10 years... Ever since I left Massachusetts, this when I went to Nantucket, I said this. Okay, this is a place that I could do seasonally, do eight weeks of the year, make a ton of money. From here, I could follow this very rich 1% of the 1% population 
to one of the places that they go. And one of them was Aspen. I could have gone down, I could have come to Boca, but most of the people go to Palm Beach here. They're on A1A. So I, I thought, geez, I don't have any roots. I don't have a family. Nobody's where, wondering where I'm going to be at Christmas. Um, why don't I just travel around and, and do my best to save as much money as I can? I went out to Colorado and I just fell in love with it. I, I have a very difficult time. I like to work in one place. I like to build a clientele. My clients are very important to me. Um, I do a lot of really great work long-term with them. I developed the entire ramp method based on the population that I worked on in, in Aspen because they were really broken. But the reason I loved it is because nobody there sits on their ass for any reason. Just getting up to go to the grocery store is a, a hike. Everything is this. Um, you'll be walking down the street in Aspen and hit a pocket where there's no air. You'll just be like... <gasps> Um, and I lost 30 pounds when I was there. So I really? Like crack it. Yeah, I lost 30 pounds. I am right now 150, just right around 150. I was 130 when I was there. So yeah, 20 pounds. What do you, what's your goal with your podcast? Oh boy. Like, do you want to make a bazillion dollars or? Uh, well, yes. Want- I, I, yes, but I would, I would rather... If I have a bazillion dollars, I will kill myself. More money, more problems. No, I don't want, I don't want money from this. I don't do it for the money. I would like to do this. So it would afford me the ability to go and just tell people the story. I love being in front of crowds. I get my energy and I expel and alleviate my anxiety being in front of a crowd, talking to them. I, I feel like I can help people with this, both with the exercise part that I've developed that is just very different than, than anything you've seen before. Um, but the story, I want to do comedy with it. I love doing stand-up. Um, it, it is intoxicating to be in mm-hmm. front of a crowd and hear them laugh back at you. It's yeah. just a story that I don't think I want. I just don't want it to bury it. and I don't want it to die. It's unique and it's part of you. Nobody else has that story. Like nobody. And not to make light of it or anything like that. It's entertaining too, because I mean, crime is people just consume it insatiably. Your story isn't like anyone else's. And so there's, it's mostly like people talking about somebody's story, but you're telling this story. So I think so what I'd love to do with yeah. the podcast eventually, once the story is told is um, invite people on it that have had brushes with the law mm-hmm. or our ex cons. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody that has a story to tell as long as the statute of limitations is up I yeah, don't want so- to be like the ex-con Chris Hansen and you come on my show and be like well you know there's cops outside your house now surprise I'm not a 12 year old girl no that's that is Chris Hansen Dateline. to catch a predator yeah that's him okay so I just need to give a special thanks to Brian Sobolewski today for hanging out and talking with me for quite a while yesterday. It was really fun. Um, He is such an interesting person and I feel really lucky that I got the chance to talk to him for such a long time. We laughed a lot and he told me a lot of stuff I did not know. Um, So you really need to check out his Instagram page. 
and his podcast. Um, you can find him on Instagram at Family Jewels Podcast. You can listen to his podcast on Anchor or iTunes or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out his book, Family Jewels. It's available on Amazon and you can find it by doing just a very quick Google search. This has been True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. And I am Kelly Barron's Brink, reminding you to lock your doors, people. Lock those jewelry store doors as well. Lock your front door, your back door. Just lock those doors. Bye-bye.